2: Welcome to our wild world. The world is dealing with an unprecedented spike in the illegal wildlife trade, threatening to overturn decades of conservation gains. Wildlife crime is big business these days and dangerous. Run by entrenched and embedded international networks and cartels, wildlife is trafficked much like illegal drugs and arms. Poaching of elephants for ivory and tigers and lions for their skins and bones is but a small part of this network. There is a lot more to it as countless other species are overexploited. By its very nature, it is almost impossible to put real monetary figures and value on the illegal trade other than the slippery slope of fallout and repercussions of impending extinctions. With my guest today, Will gartschor we're going to get a better understanding of the bigger picture and the threats we face from wildlife trafficking. Will's expertise is U.S. government relations and his World Wildlife Fund's lead congressional liaison to the overall issues of wildlife crime and trafficking and what the U.S. government, our Congress, and the administration is doing about it. Will has been closely involved in the discussions around the U.S. National Strategy on Combating Wildlife Trafficking, the President's Executive Order from this past July, and a number of State Department activities, amongst them the Security and Intelligence Communities on the Illegal Trades trades Ties, that's a a tongueful, to Mm -hmm. transnational organized crime groups. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Will Gartshore.
3: Thanks so much, Ellie. It's great to be here.
2: It's a pleasure to have you here. I know you've been traveling and been a very busy man, so thanks for sneaking this one in here. My pleasure. So I'd like to start. um, I'm going to let you wing with this today a lot. Um, I'm knowledgeable on what's going on, but you have a whole lot of knowledge that will educate me. So how about um, you give us a little background about how you came to be with not only the political arena of wildlife trafficking and trade specifically, and World Wildlife Fund.
3: Uh, Well, I've been with WWF now for about just uh, under seven years. Um, And I initially came here, I've always been uh, engaged on environmental issues. I've always cared about them. Um, And about 10, 15 years ago, I started doing a lot of writing work, uh, around environmental sustainability, um, uh, sort of corporate responsibility on the environment, um, as well as on climate change, uh, issues. Um, and I knew I wanted to work for, uh, a credible, you know, important environmental organization, um, especially on international issues. Uh, and so I was lucky enough to, to come work for WWF. And Initially, um, I came on board, um, really because of my, my, my writing skills and, uh, uh, and more from a communications angle, I suppose, but I came on board with the government relations team and very quickly I was, uh, I was being sent to the Hill to talk about stuff. So, um, I sort of stumbled into the, the lobbying world as it were, um, and, uh, and now, uh, seven years later, um, I work primarily on our international species work, uh, lobbying both the administration and uh, Congress, the wildlife crime work, which, you as you mentioned, which is a uh, somewhat newer focus, but certainly related to uh, the species conservation work, as well as climate change issues. Um, well, this,
2: we could talk for hours. I mean, our wild world focuses on just about everything you talked about. The one <laughs> aspect we haven't gotten into very much is this whole political side, because it It does become political. Uh, It's a very emotional issue when people start seeing pictures of the the horrific images and the tragedy of what's happening to elephants and rhinos and now lions. It was the panda or the polar bear. But um, there is a whole political aspect. So I'm very excited to learn more about what you do. So And I personally think World Wildlife Fund is um, lucky to have you, not just you lucky to be with them. Mm -hmm. So um, I met you at – in Denver at the U.S. Ivory Crush. And uh, you did an excellent presentation on advocacy and what's going on in wildlife trafficking. So um, let's clarify something. There is a legal trade in wildlife.
3: Yes, definitely. Definitely. And and it's a big one. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So um, maybe we should talk just a little bit about this legal side so that we have a little better understanding of what as you said, it's newer, the international um, arena of illegal wildlife trafficking. As you said, it's really hit the stage big time.
3: Sure. Yeah. I mean, there are all sorts of legitimate uses of wildlife products, obviously, um, and big markets. Um, The U.S. is the second largest uh, market for wildlife products, most of that legal. Um, but, But obviously, there is a an important line between legal trade that is sustainable, that follows the regulations both here in the U.S. and in other countries around the world, that's not ultimately doing harm to the environment in a major way, versus uh, illegal trade, um, you know, which is a devastating species and is a criminal activity, um, and in many cases is affecting species that are being pushed very close to extinction. Um, and I think the the recognition of this distinction uh, being important. Uh, you know, th- that really came to the fore in the 1970s with the signing of the Convention on International Trade and in Endangered Species, CITES, uh, also known as the Washington Convention, because it was signed here in Washington. And our uh, one of our founders, uh, the late, great Russell Train, uh, was one of the ones who really helped negotiate um, that, uh, that treaty. He was the uh, original founder of WWF. Um, and that, I think that treaty really established that it was very important to distinguish between legitimate forms of trade, forms of trade that needed to be well-regulated to prevent the um, trade from becoming a threat to the survival of species, and then trade that was illegal and unsustainable. Um, And and where it had perhaps been legal in the past, populations were being affected to such a great extent that they were in decline and therefore needed to be put in a special category uh, that would prevent trade um, in, uh, in those species or their parts, because trade itself, was a driver of extinction, and that's that's not true for um, for all species. Trade is not the primary driver for all species, but for some species, um, it is. And I think what you're seeing now with this surge uh, in uh, in the poaching crisis in wildlife trafficking is that species that even 10 years ago, for example, like African elephants, which looked like they were you know on the on the road to a pretty good recovery from the previous poaching crisis in the '80s um, are now being hit as hard as any, uh, and and trade is the main driver. Illegal trade is the main driver now of the declines in those populations.
2: So, thank you. That was great. I did not know about the uh, Washington uh, Treaty. I didn't know it was called that. Also, thank you. Know you. I've been yeah. educated today. Um, So I'm going to throw in a question here that we we didn't really discuss earlier, not that this is scripted or formatted for our listeners, we are winging it most of the time, but uh, there is a huge, this goes back to what you were talking about, trade in species, and um, we typically think these species as animals, there is trade in plants and and other biota, Uh, think of the supplemental market and all these uh, herbal uh, replacements, but... um, With the surge in animal rights and animal welfare, that every living being, uh, usually uh, focused on animals, has Mm -hmm. the right to live and should not be traded, should not be killed for our needs. Mm -hmm. Does that provide an emotional sticky wicket for you?
3: Well, I think different groups obviously take um, different opinions, uh, different positions uh, on this issue. There's a spectrum from, you know, animal rights to animal welfare to conservation, Um, you know, and then even you get into the issue of of sportsmen, uh, groups uh, like, you know, Safari Glove and others that um, believe in conservation, but also believe in, you know, making use of those animals. Um, And when you look at local populations around the world. WWF is an international organization, and different countries take different approaches to this as well. Um, You know, some countries put um, wildlife off limits. Other countries recognize uh, indigenous communities have sustainable use of wildlife. Um, You know, and so it's a a sort of nuanced um, set of approaches and different groups coming down in different places. I think that there's always an emotional angle to this. Uh, I think WWF's position is that we're about conserving these species, um, you know, in, in perpetuity, uh, to preventing extinctions, to making sure that these animals are sustainable, uh, that the populations um, are, are steady or growing, uh, and that we aren't seeing the kinds of declines that we're, we're seeing around the world. So we're really focused on ensuring that you have the survival of these species for the long term.
2: Very well answered. I appreciate that. Um, so how do we know when exactly when this wildlife trade escalated into a crisis, Uh, We all know it's been going on for a very long time. But -hmm. what was the trigger point that made it a capital letters crisis?
3: Right. Yeah, because it's amazing, actually, over the last two years to see how the the discussion around this issue has evolved. And really, I mean, I've never seen the kind of – um, interest and engagement um, on these issues that we're seeing from the U.S. government, which obviously is, is my primary focus. Um, you've always had folks who've been very engaged and interested in the issues, but but you know now it's um, it's amazing the consensus around this topic because it's become such a crisis. And the first sort of um, warning signs, I guess, that that we were getting uh, at WWF maybe three four years ago. Um, we're coming out of South Africa, really, um, where we started to see these rhino poaching numbers ticking up significantly year to year. At uh, first, it seemed like an aberration. Um, you had, up until 2007, an average of a dozen, maybe dozen rhinos being killed in South Africa illegally any given year. It was 13 in 2007. And I should clarify that South Africa is home to 80 or 90 percent of remaining rhinos in the world. So in terms of rhino conservation, that one country is, is critical. Um, but after 2007, 13 rhinos uh, were poached. And then the number just started to tick up dramatically year after year after year. So that this um, In 2012, it was 668, so that was a 5,000% increase in just five years in terms of poaching. And this past year, in 2013, it was 1,004, so that was a 50% increase over the prior year and a 7,000% increase from 2007. That is just stunning.
2: That's, That's alarming. That's highly, highly alarming. So um, do you think it's – once again, I'm winging it based on um, the information you're giving me here. So do you think the cartels um, found that they could just get away with murder, so to speak, and that they brought attention to themselves and thus this um, interest, especially by the U.S., not only the world, with WWF and other organizations, but we're going to focus a little bit more on the U.S. Uh, interest in wildlife trafficking. Um do you think they sort of pushed their own alarm bell by being so brazen?
3: I think I think that's part of it, certainly. And I, and I think that conservation groups like WWF uh, were some of the first to, to really take note that something was changing. Um, I mean, in, in addition to the, the rhino numbers that we were starting to see and which we really started to talk about uh, in earnest uh, in my conversations on the Hill with the administration, at the the, the exact same time, this is um, in 2012, you had the worst elephant massacre on record, um, you know, that we're we're aware of uh, in Cameroon, in northern Cameroon, in a a park called Buba Njida, where in um, February and March of 2012, armed horsemen from we assume probably southern Sudan crossed over much of, you know, central Africa to northern Cameroon and slaughtered around 350 elephants possibly more in the course of just a couple of weeks, which represented over fifty percent of the reigning population in that park, which was one of the you know major strongholds in the country for for um, forest elephants. And so that one incident, which again was was shocking and wasn't happening gradually like these rhino numbers, but but was sort of blasted out certainly we put it out there uh, and, and a lot of got a lot of pickup in the news. Um, and all of a sudden, people really started to take notice and saying, "What's going on here?" And our experts from Africa you know, would tell you that, that you know they've been working there since the seventies There've always been these um, during the dry season you'd have these poachers um, uh, you know from from uh, the northern regions come down on horseback um, and and go hu- elephant hunting, but they'd come down with spears. Now they're coming down with AK-47s and even rocket propelled grenades. You know, I mean, they were coming down heavily armed and, and taking out entire herds and going back with huge piles of ivory. And so the nature of poaching had changed to be a military threat uh, in a lot of ways, crossing international borders, invading um, other countries, uh, and wiping out natural resources of uh, a neighboring country. Um, you know, it, it, there's, it's a wildlife tragedy, but for these countries, it's also a tragedy for their natural heritage and potentially for their economic development, um, because in a lot of countries, the wildlife is a driver of economic growth, particularly for rural communities. Um, and that that the valuable natural asset uh, is being slaughtered and then carted off um, and then being, I mean, that's, that's a lot of money, right? I mean, that's, the,
2: that's a huge um, conception of what we call leakage, you know, before it was just lodges or whatever, taking income from wildlife-based tourism and sending it to other countries where those lodges had their corporate offices. But now this really focused on actual, real, um, tangible losses to these countries. So that must have um, also triggered uh, the international and the U.S., uh, participation. So we've got about two minutes to the break. So I'd like to get started on how this uh, alarm bell and coming up and the triggering that this is unprecedented, how World Wildlife Fund and you in particular got the U.S. government involved. And then we'll pick up after the break with the actions and uh, unprecedented actions I'd say that the U.S. is taking. So How did the U.S. start to take notice of this? What work did you do to bring this to our political attention?
3: Right. So we recognize, based on everything we've just discussed, that this wasn't just a conservation issue anymore, right? This is an economic development issue. It's a foreign policy issue. And it's a national security issue. Because you know that the guys who are taking that ivory – and heading back to Sudan or wherever, it's going nowhere good. Uh, and the and the funds that are, are being generated by the selling of those products based on the prices that we're seeing out of uh, out of East Asia because of the increased demand, that's generating a ton of financing for, um, for really bad guys. So WWF, as a global network, not just in the U.S. but but internationally, launched a campaign called Stop Wildlife Crime, uh, and that is that sort of set us on the road to where we are now.
2: Well, this is incredible. So, we, uh, once again, for our listeners, we're talking with Will Gartshore, the Congressional and U.S. Governmental Relations with uh, Working with World Wildlife Fund. So, you're going to want to stick with us, and we'll be right back after the break.
1: Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G.
4: Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things. And together, you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety.
2: Welcome back to Our Wild World with my guest, Will Gartshore, congressional liaison with uh, working with World Wildlife Fund. So before the break, uh, we'll mention a very important critical issue that we really need to take note of now, that wildlife uh, trafficking has escalated conserving of species, that it's no longer a conservation issue. It's no longer just an environmental issue. It is an international and national security issue, not only to the countries where this wildlife is being taken, but to the U.S. So, um, Will, why don't you talk, us, t- t- talk to us about and take us through how the U.S. and the State Department has become involved.
3: Okay, great. Yeah. So as you say, I mean, there was a recognition that this is no longer just a conservation issue. It's much bigger than that. When you've got paramilitary groups coming in to take out populations of elephants, a conservation organization can only do so much, right? right. And so our role in a way was to be the kind of, you know, to ring the bell, the, the warning bell. And to try and engage the folks who could actually do something about this, both by getting these countries to take this issue seriously, by upping the penalties because they were very minimal and the profits were so great. It just made sense to get into this business, Um, you know, and to engage the U.S. government, both through its diplomatic leverage, through the resources it might bring to bear, um, you know, through its influence in those countries um, themselves, um, and so we set out a, a campaign plan, a year-long campaign, like I said, called Stop Wildlife Crime, which had as several key elements of it engaging the U.S. government on this issue. Um, and we knew the State Department was going to be key because of the international piece of this uh, and because, um, you know, we, we work amazingly with Fish and Wildlife Service and they are great international partners. But we knew that we needed to broaden it um, to bring in security elements, to bring in the intelligence community potentially because of the connections to really bad, bad actors in places like Central Africa and Eastern Africa. Um, and so we decided to uh, engage with initially Secretary Hormats, who was under Secretary Clinton when she was uh, Secretary of State, uh, and he was uh, in charge of um, energy, economic growth and Environment uh, that bureau, uh, and had and took a, sp- a specific interest in the rhino issue in it, uh, issue initially. Um, and then when we saw what happened in Cameroon with elephants as well, and really started to, to beat this drum and get the State Department engaged and to bring it up in an international conversation. Conversations traveled to Vietnam, which is the the main market for rhino horn, and brought it up with his counterparts there to say, you know, we need to do something about this. We need to make clear that that it's not a cure for cancer, which was a myth that was going around. Um, that that you need to do everything you can to protect these species. And the other piece of it was that he started to raise it with Secretary Clinton. Um, and in the summer of 2012, um, they they both traveled to uh, to Africa, including South Africa, and she saw firsthand uh, what was going on in South. South africa she heard from the south african government how serious this issue was in kruger national park where their military had to be engaged because of the um the hunting of rhinos with high-powered rifles and helicopters and night vision goggles and and she came back determined to do something about it and so you saw over the course of the fall of 2012 movement by the state department to really put this on the agenda as a foreign policy issue uh, and in november of 2012 She held a partners event uh, at the State Department uh, with ambassadors from both African and Asian countries, NGO partners, business representatives, um, and talked at length about this issue, made it a priority for her and the the State Department, um, and and announced that she was calling for a national intelligence assessment of the connections between the wildlife trafficking that we were seeing uh, and groups like the Janjaweed militia um, in in Sudan, groups like the Lord's Resistance Army, uh, where evidence had emerged that Joseph Kony was using ivory to finance some of his activities, and groups like Al Shabaab in East Africa, because of some evidence that they perhaps were in the ivory trade um, on the border with Kenya, doing poaching there, um, and that and, and set in motion uh, in, uh, an assessment that brought all the intelligence agencies of the U.S. government on board. And so all of a sudden, you're seeing these new partners um, coming to to the aid of the the folks who are focused on the conservation side, to the natural resource uh, conservation folks. Uh, And you start to see this whole-of-government approach taking shape. And and over the course of the following months, we began to have more conversations with partners in the administration, in the Interior Department, continuing conversations with the State Department. Um, And it became clear that perhaps... The president might even want to do something on this. And it, he was taking a trip to Africa uh, in July of 2013. And it seemed like a real opportunity um, to really put this at the top of, of, uh, of the agenda while he was there. Uh, and while in Tanzania, um, he came out with the executive order on combating wildlife trafficking, which was just, you know, for us is, is huge um, because it puts this issue on a level it's, it's never been before.
2: Well, I can only say I wish I could be a fly on the wall in some of these meetings. It would be um, unprecedented to to hear what's going on. And I can only imagine, and maybe you can expand on this a little bit, the change in the role of – Conservation, as it is today, in terms of everything you 've talked about sustainability, world wildlife funds work, and all the other organizations that are out there, international and locally based in africa that it's have you have you found it has been difficult to combine conservation in terms of how we historically used it and wildlife management to this political arena, militarizing international law enforcement and um, getting it onto an agenda like this where everyone's on board has it has it created problems or is it working smoothly
3: well i mean i think the way that that we envision it is that there is core conservation work that continues right the work that we've done forever is is good solid work and we've made significant progress the problem is that this new threat is actually undermining all of the success we've had through our conservation work uh, in places like africa with elephants and so you have to continue to do the bread and butter conservation work that is is our forte, right? And that is other groups like us, Um, you know, and those agencies that have worked on these issues for a long, long time need to continue to do that work. You have to keep on monitoring populations. You have to keep on working with communities on human wildlife conflict. You have to keep on educating and doing outreach and creating models of conservation that work for local people Um, because those end up being the preventative medicine for the next crisis. But at the same time, we have a whole new set of actors who've you know gotten into this because you know maybe yesterday it was cocaine or you know or our arms but today it's like hey you know the big bucks are in rhino horn or the big bucks are in ivory so let's move into this trade well a conservation organization or traditional conservation agencies can't fully deal with um, with that issue, it's it's beyond the scope of our skill set, and so I think the way we see it is, you have to bring on board the guys, the drugs and thugs guys, you know, in the U.S. government have to see this as a priority as well, um, because all of a sudden it is a parallel to what you see with drug trafficking or other kinds of trafficking, and the same really bad guys are involved. Like this is not your grandfather's poacher, right? Right. Uh, and so it, for us. Um that is our, our, what, what's so gratifying about what you've seen out of the Obama administration and um, continuing now with Secretary Kerry, who's always been a champion on these issues. And so just, you know, of course, is continuing to work on this. Um, Secretary Jewell and also uh, the Department of Justice, which was brought on board, which we thought was an amazing uh, addition to this sort of trifecta that co-chairs the president's task force on wildlife trafficking with Department of State, Department of Interior and Department of Justice, which for us since we came at this as a crime issue, stop wildlife crime, is key, right? Because it's being recognized as a criminal activity and a huge one. And so why wouldn't you treat it the same way that you treat these other forms of transnational organized crime? And the U.S. government um, has recognized that not just in the administration, but uh, in Congress as well, where you've seen traditional champions um, really stepping forward and, and making a big push on this, as well as new champions who've been really moved by, you know, just how bad it's gotten to say, we need to do something about this. And uh, it's been incredibly heartening to work on.
2: So um, this would be a really good time to help us understand what the executive order is, Obama's executive order. Right. And what? Um, and how that partners into the Clinton Global Initiative. As you said, this is really taking the world stage. So help us understand exactly what those two uh, initiatives are.
3: Great. Um, so, yeah, so we, they're sort of at this point parallel initiatives because um, the President's executive order uh, in, on July 1 of uh, last year um, called for the establishment of a uh, presidential task force on wildlife trafficking, whose first task was to devise a national strategy on wildlife trafficking. Um, and that, that task force include, included 15 or so government agencies. So it wasn't just Fish and Wildlife Service Department of State. And uh, this is
2: within the U.S.?
3: Within the U.S., okay. correct. Uh, so this is specific to the U.S. government. Um, and so you also had, you know, the Department of Defense included in that. Um, you have USAID. You have the uh, International Law Enforcement Bureau at the State Department. Um, and they were tasked with coming up with key actions that could be taken to combat this crisis. And they had six months to develop that strategy. Uh, the president also called to, uh, for an establishment of an uh, a panel of outside experts, an advisory council um, that could help with the development of that strategy and feed in information from groups like our own, from former government officials like uh, former Deputy Secretary David Hayes, who was instrumental uh, in working on the executive order while in office and, and now is one of the co-chairs of the advisory council now that he's no longer with the administration. Um, and so that those two bodies kind of work together. Uh, but with the task force doing the heavy lifting to come up with a strategy, which was released uh, in mid-February, um, just to just over a month ago, um, and so at the same time, with uh, um, now former Secretary Clinton um, having left office, uh, she this passion which she developed uh, while at the State Department for. Um, for this issue. Uh, One of the first big uh, international issues she decided to champion out of office was this, uh, and continued to engage her daughter, uh, Chelsea, also now um, a huge champion on this stuff. And they decided to bring it to the Clinton Global Initiative last September um, as one of their key uh, priorities. And so they assembled a number of groups, including WWF, um, to sort of pool commitments on elephants specifically. Um, she just decided to focus largely on the African elephant, um, issue. Uh, and so commitments from groups like world wildlife fund, international, um, fund for animal welfare, others to, uh, to pull together what everyone was going to do to help conserve elephants and and put that under the umbrella of CGI as a way to really elevate it internationally, to drive more interest and potentially drive more resources over time um, to to the work that collectively we're doing to protect African elephants.
2: Well, this is an incredible movement forward. So um, I'm going to throw a little tangent in here. Mm -hmm. So now we have – the power and the might of the U.S. government and an international body and this task force. And is it only focused on other countries' wildlife or is some of the same focus being applied to our own wildlife? And let's say the continued loss of our own carnivores, wolves, uh, uh, the USDA wildlife services. Um, I've done a lot of shows on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is it included as is, is, Are issues about our own wildlife also included in this task force, or is it mostly focused on elephants, rhinos, and other nations' wildlife?
3: That's a great question. Uh, and I think we've been talking a lot about elephants and rhinos, but as you said at the outset of this program, um, while those are the sort of like poster children, certainly of our campaign uh, and of a lot of what you've heard discussed, it's a much broader strategy than that. And some of the most trafficked species are not, um, you know, these charismatic megafauna uh, that we're so uh, familiar with, but things like pangolins, right, which is a right. scale really cool scaly mammal that is one of the most trafficked species on the planet things like corals um you know birds fish uh and certainly within the US there is a key component of the strategy that is focused on U.S. domestic law enforcement and engaging the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service law enforcement guys, working with folks like the Department of Homeland Security, the Customs and Border Protection guys. Um, you know, the USDA, as you mentioned, uh, the Animal, Plant, uh, Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, APHIS, at the borders is key. Um, and so what do we do to both prevent um, wildlife being trafficked into the U.S., from other countries um, and also to make sure that we are not witnessing illegal trafficking of our own wildlife um, and that includes uh, indigenous species to the US includes things like captive Tigers in the US of which there are something like 5,000 captive Tigers in the United States which is more than you have in the wild in all of Asia right. uh, with 3,200 remaining and so it's very poorly regulated in terms of what happens to these animals. You saw with that incident in Ohio a couple of years ago in Zanesville where all those exotic animals escaped and had to be shot,
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, where we don't know half the time what's in, what's in our neighbor's backyard, right, and who may be trafficking in species that are protected under the Endangered Species Act under CITES, um, under other conventions or, or, or domestic laws. Uh, and so that's a definite component of this strategy as well. Um,
2: I'm really glad to hear that because we need to clean up our own backyard. As you just mentioned this, uh, the the situation in Ohio and uh, clean up our own permitting processes of who can keep exotics and, uh, trade in wildlife dead or alive. So, uh, once again, we've got about a minute or so to our break. So, um, what kind of money are we talking about here in terms of the uh, administration and the task force? What kind of uh, value are we talking about in terms of dollars that we're putting in to this task force?
3: Right. So um, one of the great... Things that came out of the past couple of months, in addition to the administration's national strategy, has been uh, a lot of movement in Congress around this issue. And you saw in the budget bill that was passed in um, January, the uh, the big appropriations bill for uh, fiscal year 2014, um, they included 45 million dollars specifically to implementation of the national strategy. Which is, you know, compared to a lot of other things, may not be a huge pot of money. It's it's really big um, for the kind of stuff that we do. That that is a huge vote of confidence from Congress um, to say, go and implement this and do it right. Um,
2: That's a tremendous boon. And it's, you know, that's fabulous. I'm sure um, a lot of the arguments could uh, battle around that number in terms of the deficit and everything that we have. But right now we're going to head into a break. So stick with us with my guest, Will Gartshore, and uh, we'll be right back.
4: Museum life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. You're listening to L.A. Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to WildEyes at WildEyes.org. That's W I L D I Z E at W I L D I Z E dot ORG. Now, back to our Wild World.
2: And welcome back to our Wild World with my uh, fascinating guest, Will Garchor, with WWF and the Congressional and U.S. State Department liaison. So, For our listeners, what I'm hoping that you'll get out of today's episode is that as we've said previous during this program, this is not just about conservation and loving animals and environmentalism anymore. Uh, the trade in wildlife traffic and the illegal trade, legal and illegal trade, has become very, very big business. So Will works very closely with the U.S. government and our various law enforcement agencies, but even more so the political side. So right before the break, we were talking about the uh, Obama's executive order. And the Clinton Initiative, but let's take this a little closer to what is actually happening in our Congress.
3: Sure, yeah. And as we were talking about just before the break, um, you know, you just saw this um, this funding bill for for the government that included new uh, this this money, forty five million dollars. Um, for, for fiscal year 2014 to implement the national strategy and to combat wildlife trafficking and poaching. And I think this says a couple of things. One, you know, I work on a number of issues for WWF um, and not all of them do you have bipartisan consensus on. Um, but this is one that you just no matter who you talk to, they get it. And part of the reason that you're seeing that um, you know, as, as vocally as you've ever seen it before is, as you said, um, people get the conservation needs. right? They want to save uh, wildlife like elephants or rhinos. They recognize that no matter what side of the aisle you're on. Um, but once you recognize that the trade in these species, uh, the illegal trade, which is valued at something like 8 to $10 billion annually – just the illegal trade, um, and then if you add in timber and fish on top of that, it's more like twenty billion dollars annually. And people realize where that money is flowing. They say, "Well, this isn't just conservation. This is this could be funding the guys who are trying to do harm to you know to Americans and and to our country. Um, you know, and it's in- impacting everything we're trying to do um, in terms of development in places like sub-Saharan Africa. If you, you if you are trying to build tourism economies." That are being undermined by violence, corruption, and the eradication of wildlife. And so uh, you've seen champions like his long standing champions, like Ed Royce of California, uh, Republican in the House, um, Tom Udall of New Mexico, Democrat in the Senate, um, and others uh, like A. K. Granger of Texas, um, Republican in the House, Senator Coons of Delaware, a uh, Democrat, um, who are coming to the fore and really. Tr- together through their collective efforts, um, raising the profile of this issue um, with longstanding champions like us, uh, now Secretary Kerry um, uh, at the State Department, uh, and really putting it on the map as a foreign policy uh, priority and bringing it up when they can. You've seen numerous hearings on this um, going back to 2012, when then uh, Chairman Kerry of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee had a hearing on the Elephant Massacre uh, and what we are seeing in terms of trafficking, um, to most recently uh, House Foreign Affairs hearing uh, that uh, Chairman Royce called, uh, on the connections to security. Um, And you're seeing efforts to not just, you know, fund, provide resources, um, you know, make sure the agencies can help other countries do what they need to do, but also moves to tighten up our own domestic laws. Uh, There are some uh, discussions about um, potential legislation to make wildlife trafficking what's called a predicate offense to other serious crimes like money laundering and smuggling and racketeering. That's already already true of drug trafficking, so that if you traffic in narcotics, automatically these other serious um, laws can be brought to bear to make sure the penalty fits the crime. That hasn't been true for wildlife trafficking, and so a lot of the time the fines are minuscule compared to the amount of money that can be made in this trade, so it's not a disincentive. And we've been pushing WWF um, since we launched our campaign to say this is an easy fix to U.S. law, if you just put wildlife trafficking in the list alongside these other forms of trafficking, recognizing the amount of money that's in it, all of a sudden, these really important law enforcement tools can be brought to bear by people like Fish and Wildlife Service law enforcement, so they know that it's going to be taken seriously if they catch a guy who's smuggling in wildlife. Um, And if they they bring him to court and he's convicted and sentenced, he's not just going to get a You know, a couple uh, thousand dollar fine or a slap on the wrist, but he could go to jail. And you're seeing um, there's a big operation called Operation Crash that's being led by Fish and Wildlife Service law enforcement now for the past couple of years on a rhino horn trafficking ring right here in the U.S., uh, it's included a number of foreign nationals and there have been numerous convictions uh, and folks have been sentenced as part of that crackdown. Um, and you're seeing this really serious effort now uh, on this issue um, with not just Fish and Wildlife Service, but as I said before, Department of Justice really heavily engaged in this now. Um, so Congress is recognizing that and seeing what they can do to provide the tools that are needed um, to make sure you know the law enforcement guys can do what they need to do to help um, end this and prevent the U.S., from being a place where a wildlife trafficking, either whether it's a transit nation where the, the goods are flowing through here uh, or money is flowing into U.S. bank accounts. Um, I mean, that's another big piece, getting the Department of Treasury to be able to go after illegal financial flows that's tied to wildlife trafficking and the profits from it. Um, because that's a huge way to take down these international networks, these criminal networks.
2: This has been absolutely fascinating and highly enlightening and educational, which is the goal of the show. And uh, hopefully um, our listeners, those who love animals for animal's sake, but that this is a much, much bigger issue and that it's finally – taking um, its rightful place on the stage in terms of the crises that we are meeting, in terms of all the tipping points that we're facing, uh, climate change, environmental degradation, you name it. It's all coming together and it really is all interconnected. So tell me a little bit, what is the Global Environment Facility and how does that work and how is that tied into this?
3: So the Global Environment Facility, also uh, what we call the GEF for short, um, it's it's the biggest funder of international uh, conservation in the world. Um, It's uh, it's um, assists governments and other non, uh, non governmental agencies in development, implementation, and management. Uh, uh, of of these projects, uh, WWF is um, is now a uh, it's one of two non governmental organizations that have become a project agency um, for the Jeff um, and the Jeff funds uh, climate change work it funds. Um, uh, protected area work, marine conservation work, work on global fisheries. Um, But they've also started to look at funding efforts on um, anti-trafficking, on wildlife trafficking. Uh, And so WWF has been working with them to design uh, potential programs. It's a new area uh, for them, but they are, as I said, the largest public funder uh, of environmental protection um, globally. Um, so they could be a very important player uh, on this issue, in addition to all of the amazing work that they do um, on on environmental conservation writ large around the globe.
2: So just for the heck of it, from reading through the... WWF website, I'm going to throw out some numbers here. Um, WWF became a project agency, as you said, in November of 13 to the Jeff. and since being created in 1992, the Jeff has awarded $12 billion in grants and leveraged nearly $60 billion more across 3,000 projects. So, do you think there is any fertile ground there for conflicts of interest or corruption uh, or a uh, Anything along that line? And where does this money come from?
3: Uh, so the Jeff is an, uh, an intergovernmental um, organization, right? So it's created and it's funded by countries that that give a certain amount uh, annually to the JEF, uh, which it then disperses through its, its projects. So it's oh.
2: apolitical?
3: Correct. Okay. Yeah. and it, it's yeah and it's it's it, again like i said it's it's funded multilaterally by um by countries uh and it is the the facility the facility the facilitator um for channeling that that collective funding um to environmental conservation projects globally um, that's incredible and, yeah so it's it's a, uh, it's an amazing tool um that's been, been been created um and uh and does excellent work but it it is as i said it's it's you know it's under um it's funded directly by governments like the, like the U.S. provide funding to that on an annual basis.
2: So let's bring this a little closer to home. Not necessarily the U.S., but as a result of this increased awareness of wildlife trafficking and the crisis facing elephants in particular and rhino, there's been two really big meetings. Um, the one in the London the London conference, and then the one in New York, and then the recent uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Uh, changed regulations on ivory sales within the U.S. As you had mm-hmm. said earlier, the U.S. is uh, the second largest user of wildlife trade and traffic, whether it's coming through or going through, but also in terms of live animals. So what were briefly, what were some of the best outcomes of these two conferences, the London one and the one in New York?
3: In, in New York, you're referring to the CGI conference? Yes. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, the London conference was, again, I mean, another amazing um, event. And it came actually, the national strategy in the U.S. was released, I think, on February 14th. And I think the London conference opened on February 15th. So it was a very big week uh, for this issue. And, Were you there? Uh, I was not, no. Um, one of my, my colleague, Lee Henry, was at uh, the initial conference, which happened in May uh, last year to get, uh, which was the first London conference to to prep for this summit that happened. But um, WWF, uh, it's you know we're not just in the US; we're an international organization, and our U- UK office was uh, very closely involved in in all of that, as well as our international office out of out of Switzerland. So we definitely had a presence there. Um, but uh, you know when we launched the campaign, as I said, it was a global campaign; it wasn't just a US campaign. Um, and one of the key goals was to get at the highest levels of government, not just in the U.S., uh, but in countries around the world, uh, for this issue to be taken seriously. And so our um, partner offices in other countries have been leading their own campaigns to do just that uh, in places like the U.K. and African countries uh, like Gabon and Asia and Thailand, where we've seen that we saw the prime minister there declare she uh, would um, uh, ban the ivory trade there. So the London conference was a way to bring together all of this momentum that's uh, been generated around the globe um, to try and get folks to put down a declaration of commitments on what of collective action um, to stop wildlife trafficking because it is innately an international issue, right? One country cannot stop this because you're seeing source, you know, the, the, the stuff being sourced in Africa primarily, it's going to Asia, it's crossing through all sorts of different countries. The money's touching U.S. bank accounts. It's got to be a collective effort. And so um, that dec- the declaration that emerged from that um, conference, we were very, very, very pleased with, um, and the kind of high-level commitment that you've seen, because it, that conference probably could not have taken place two years ago. Um, Absolutely. And, and I think that's just a testament to, um, you know, how much folks have turned their eyes on this issue and recognized how serious it is. Um, and then I think what CGI um, represents, in addition to the sort of marshalling of those commitments of, of the NGOs, um, they had a number of countries there um, pledging, making pledges around a moratoria on ivory trade. Uh, in the in their respective countries, uh, which was another push that it was part of the CGI effort. But I think, as much as anything, it shows that um, you know uh, former Secretary Clinton is a is a powerful public figure, um, and I think it's great to have her um, making this a priority. And, you know, who knows what role she may or may not fill in the future, but um, it's great to have not just her, uh, but her daughter and also her husband um, talking about this issue. Uh, My CEO, Carter Roberts, uh, was uh, speaking at an event that Senator Coons hosted in Delaware called Opportunity Africa just um, a couple weeks ago. And the keynote speaker at that event uh, was Bill Clinton. Um, And not only did Senator Coons dedicate Um, several minutes of his opening keynote to the wildlife trafficking issue, given his interest in Africa. But Bill Clinton did as well, former President Clinton. Um, And so, I mean, you know, when you've got someone with that kind of a megaphone uh, I can only do so much talking to the folks I know <laughs> I know at the State Department or in the halls of Congress. But when you've got the former president um, and the, the former secretary of state um, and, you know, Chelsea Clinton, who's really cool, talking about this stuff as well. Um, I mean, that's that's amazing. Uh, and it was a goal that we set and, uh, and we never thought we'd achieve it. And, and so it's uh, it's incredible.
2: Well, it just goes to show things can change. Some dreams can can come true. true. And as you said, you know, when we've got this kind of clout, this kind of megaphone um, backing wildlife and wildlife issues and wildlife trade um, is really important, and it's important for the public to understand that we have this in our corner. So let's bring it down to the individual. As you just said, there's, you know, we each have a voice, but what can the public, our listeners, now that we have this This huge um, momentum going, as you'd said, what can people do, individuals, every day, you, me, what are the advocacy things that we can do to help keep our states, uh, individual states, on board and keep the momentum going?
3: Right, right. Um, And as we we were discussing earlier, I mean, it's not just, you know, the folks who support organizations like World Wildlife Fund are are critical for us, right? I mean, that kind of support goes to all the work that we're talking about. But it's not just about Um, donating to your favorite conservation organization because you have an individual voice and people do listen to it. And one of the reasons that we've seen so much traction on this issue, whether it's in the halls of Congress or with the administration, is because so many people have said, this is important to me. And this is true even before the trafficking crisis. I mean, I I work on helping um, ensure that there, there are funds available for the U.S. government to support species conservation of elephants and rhinos and tigers, not just around trafficking, but writ large. And those funds are some of the most popular programs that the U.S. government has out there. There's huge constituent interest and Congress knows that. And so Folks who write into their members who, you know, if they have an opportunity to talk to them at a local event, uh, if you know that your member is doing something good on this, say thank you and, and tell them to keep up the good work because uh, everybody likes to be appreciated for things that they're doing right. And I'll, there are a lot of folks out there are doing great stuff. Uh, and so if, you know, there's a lot of disenchantment with governments and a lot of different issues, but this is one where a lot of a lot of leaders are doing really good things and they need to hear from their uh, from their constituents that they are. And I'll say one other thing, because uh, I know we're going to have to wrap up, that, you know, we can achieve success because we just saw in Nepal, which is a country where we've been working for a long time, we just saw that only the second ever year of zero poaching, not a single elephant, rhino, or tiger, was killed uh, in the 12 months that just ended in March of, of 2014. And that only was achieved one other time in 2011. That is stunning. Consider- that, that's,
2: that's an astonishing accomplishment.
3: Right. So, so You're right. Do- it can be done. Yeah, yeah,
2: and and you also said something important. There is so much vitriol being spewed through social networks of, you know, hammering people of what they're doing wrong, that it does take. Um, it, it, it's worth it to take time and say thank you for what is being done because that does build the momentum and it does show our, that our leaders, our, our politicians, and our representatives are hearing us. So for our listeners. Take the time when you get on your social networks and see petitions to our uh, representatives. Please take the moment to sign them. This, it doesn't go off into the great nowhere. They are being read. As you just heard from our fascinating guest, Will Gartshore. advocacy works. Change is happening. Wildlife is on the top of the scale right now. It's right up there. It's receiving a lot of attention. So I want to thank you so much, Will. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
3: Pleasure talking to you.
2: And I hope we can have you back sometime and stay caught up on this. And in the meantime, this is Ellie Weiss. And thank you for listening to Our Wild World. We'll see you next week.
1: Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.
0: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com.